You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. Today we are beginning a brand new series that is called Mind Your Business. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 19. So if you want to try to find that right now, Matthew 19 in your Crossroads Grace apps or your Bible. Uh, Melissa, if you put that link in there for me right now. Now, to let you know, it's going to be a minute till I get there. It's going to be a little bit of a runway. So hang tight. I'm going to set the series up in just a minute. Now, if you ever hear someone say, mind your business, it kind of makes you want to bow up to them a little bit, right? You know, because when somebody says, hey, mind your business, it's usually done when you think that they've gotten up in your business a little bit too much, and you're like, hey, back off, buddy. So you might hear a couple of guys going nose to nose before they square off, like, hey, mind your business, man, you know, like something like that. You might have some girls go back and forth, mind your business, no, you mind your business, you mind your, like, back and forth. You might hear it at, at Thanksgiving, when your sister passes you the, the mashed potatoes and says something like, hey, wouldn't it be great if you were married next year? Ah, right? And you're like, why don't you mind your business? Right? You know, that kind of, kind of thing, you know? So, so mind your business is this universal jab that, that, to tell somebody, hey, step back, stay in your lane, just mind your business. But you might be surprised to see, hear how that phrase has been used throughout history. In fact, it dates all the way back to 1787 and one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. Now, of course, Franklin is probably most known for his his being the father of electricity in 1752. We have the whole kite project when that whole thing went down, like you probably remember that. But what you might have forgotten is that he also was involved in shaping what became the United States of America. Along with four others, Franklin helped draft the Declaration of Independence. He was the one that negotiated and drafted the Treaty of Paris in 1783, the end of the Revolutionary War. Oh, and he also was a delegate from Pennsylvania that helped to craft the U.S. Constitution. In other words, the guy's kind of a big deal, like a big deal dude. But what's interesting, another interesting sidebar is that he was involved in our money. Franklin is one of two non-U.S. presidents that's actually on U.S. currency. Now, you probably know about one of them. Franklin is on the $100 bill. So back in the 90s, P. Diddy reminded us that it was all about the Benjamins, right? We probably, there we go, good class, okay? Um, But did you know that Franklin was also responsible for designing the very first U.S. one-cent piece? It was created in 1787. It was originally called the Fujio Cent. And frankly, and Franklin created this very uniquely. On one side of the coin, you'll notice there's 13 rings representing the 13 colonies. And on the inner, inner part of it, it says, we are one. Later, that would be replaced, we are one, would be replaced by a Latin phrase, e pluribus urum, which means one from many. But on the other side of the coin is the other side, where we actually get to see in the middle, there's a sundial in the center of it. But if you look all the way at the bottom, it says, mind your business. Okay? Yeah. Now, the reason the coin was called the Fugio Cent was because in Latin, that means I fly or I flee. And when it's connected with the sundial, it basically means that time is flying by. 
Now this phrase, mind your business, all the way on the bottom, Franklin basically was trying to drive home this idea that we need to stay focused on what we're doing, the business at hand, to be as successful as possible. And if this coin image is right and time is fleeting, you could also say that time is money, too. So Franklin saw mind your business as a reminder to keep our head down, work hard for your money. But today, this phrase is received much, much differently. Today, we see mind your business as a personal affront, especially when it comes to our money. But we cannot ignore the fact that at one point, it was literally on our money. And I think it's safe to say that we love to tell other people, and especially God, to mind their business when it comes to our money. We think it is our concern. We don't don't need to butt into it. It is between us and us. So if everyone, including God, could kindly step back behind that line of what is his and what is mine, that'd be great. Because my money is of none of his business. But if we stop and think about this as a Christian, and we realize that everything we have, everything that we are is from God, it changes things. Psalm chapter 89, the New Living Translation says, the heavens are yours and the earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. You created it all. And so since God gave us our life, God wants to be part of all of our life, which means that he actually wants to be involved in our money too. And we even believe this as as early as, as far back as 1955. That's when President Dwight Eisenhower uh, in July of 1955 required this phrase to be on all of our money. It says, in God, we trust. So if we truly trust God, then we should realize that there is nothing that isn't his business which is why over the next three weeks we want to consider this whole business of our money and whose it really is. Now, the first way that you can look at your money and how, how you can mind your business with your money is to say, well, everything I have is mine. It's all mine, baby. Mine, 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 mine. After all, I worked for it. I put in the time. I went to school. I climbed that corporate ladder. I sold my hair on eBay. Like, I don't know what you did. Like, you made money somehow. So, so I'll be darned if I'm going to let some God somewhere that I can't even see tell me what I could do with my hard-earned hair money. Like, what is it that you're going to say to me? Now, what I just described to you is probably something that you're not surprised. We, we probably have seen it's pretty common to think that way. But did you know that there's another unhealthy way to look at money? And it's when you think that, all, that you'll never have enough money. And so you hoard it and you keep as much as you possibly can. And there's actually like a name for that. It's actually like a, 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 a name that psychologists have created. It's called chromatophobia. Chromatophobia. It's this fear, uh, an irrational fear of spending money. Now, you might have heard it as another phrase in the Central Valley. It's called being Dutch. Like that is basically what that. <laughs> Like, I couldn't resist. I asked a Dutch person before I said that. They're like, go for it. I was like, anyway, okay, right? So, uh, and this happens. This happens when there's a disproportional, like, we, we deny ourselves this disproportional thing with money, and we want to accumulate as much as we possibly can. And so often, chromatophobia, they'll consider this a good thing to save money. They'll never spend anything. That way, they always have control of, of, of financially around themselves. But what's important to realize is that both of those ways, chromatotherapy, chromatophobia, and just it's all mine, is a way of saying, hey, God, mind your business. I got this. I I don't need you to be any part of my money. My money is mine. And honestly, all of us have been there in this position before. We we all have. 
Um, this is true for my wife, Cherie, and I. Uh, she's here today. Like, she can admit that when we first got married, we hadn't been through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University to realize how we use God's money God's way. And if you haven't been through that, I'd encourage you to be a part of it. I'll put a little link underneath there for you. I would really love you to do that. And, and listen, we didn't have a lot of money when we first got married. But what little we did, we wanted to spend on us. So listen, I'll, I'll be darned. If we just hadn't finished our undergrad degrees, we had moved from South Dakota to the Chicago area, we landed good jobs. We were making decent money. And frankly, we were tired of eating Papa John's pizza and, Roman, and ramen noodles. Okay, that's just the reality of college life. So we lived it up a little bit. We went out to eat at places that didn't have waiters on roller skates. I mean, we did it pretty good, right? We, we bought some furniture. We even financed one of those big screen flat, those big screen TVs from Best Buy. But as before, they were flat screens, and they looked like they were made out of a refrigerator box, and they are about like that wide, and they had the tube about the, you know what I'm saying? Help me remember those. Yeah, probably still paying off some of that. But anyway, right? So that's what we, we had that, right? The problem is we really didn't have the money for that, and we also kind of lost sight of God in the process. So from time to time, we all see our money as ours to spend as we want because we simply don't trust that God has our best interest in mind. We think that he's going to tell us no on some things that we really, really want, so we cut him out of the whole decision-making process. Or we say that we think he won't be able to provide for us, so we decide to turn into our own financial saviors. And it's all a way of saying, God, hey, thanks for saving my life. I appreciate you for giving my sins, but I'll take the money part of my life from here. Thank you very much. So, like, what does God say about all this? Or better yet, what are the spiritual ramifications of telling God to mind his business when it comes to our money? Well, to tackle that today, I want us to look at a famous interaction that Jesus had in Matthew chapter 19. If you haven't found that by now, I don't know what you've been doing, okay? So I've given you as much time as I can. Matthew chapter 19, open up there. Go ahead, one more time, put that link in there for my online folks. But by the time we catch up with Jesus in Matthew 19, he's been busy, really, really busy in his ministry. He's well-known, he's gaining a following, and he's ruffling all kinds of feathers. Now, the people, they loved him because he was healing people left and right. He was teaching with this new authority they've never experienced before, and, and they, he was loving people in this indescribable way. The religious leaders, on the other hand, they couldn't stand the guy. They were constantly trying to trick him into things, trying to discredit him, and very soon they were going to try to find a way to kill him. So to say Jesus was polarizing is an understatement, but yet he was a very intriguing figure as well, which is why you will see people come to him that normally would dare never come to him, but yet they would come to him with this intrigue, and you'll see that in the story that we talk about today. Matthew chapter 19, start with me in verse 16, and we'll start there where it says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to, to get eternal life? Now, the story that we're going to look at today is found in three out of the four Gospels. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're known as the Synoptic Gospels. But the fact that it's mentioned in three out of four means it's a very significant moment in the life of Jesus. Historically, it's known as the rich young ruler. But the person referred to in the scripture will either be called as a young man, a man, or a certain ruler in those three different uh, accounts that I just mentioned. We'll dive into this a little bit more here in a second. But what we do know is regardless, he was a man between the ages of 20 and around 40 years old when he approaches Jesus. And he asks a question that I believe that every single one of us wants to know the answer to deep down inside. And that is, how do I gain eternal life? I mean, deeper, deeper still than that is what happens 
when this life is over? What happens when I die? Which makes it a very important question to wrestle with, and it's why Jesus takes this question very seriously. But you do have to give this young man some credit, though, because when it comes to the most deepest question of his soul, he decides to come come to none other than Jesus himself, which will be very telling here in just a second, and we're going to find out more. But we'll keep reading for right now. Approaches Jesus with this question. In verse 17, it says, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. So the young man wants to press in on Jesus when Jesus says, hey, eternal life is connected with the commandments or with the law. And so almost like an eager puppy, he's like, ooh, which ones? Tell me, tell me, tell me, which ones did it, right? I want to know all the laws. And I can see Jesus kind of smiling with a little sheepish grin on his face, can't you? kind of half smiles back at him and he responds to this young man by picking just five laws from what's known as the Decalogue or you might know them as the Ten Commandments and he uses them as a bit of a litmus test with this young man. And he goes a little new, he a little King James with him. He says, well, what about thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, and honoring your father and mother? How you doing with those, big boy? And look at what this guy says to Jesus's response. Verse 20 says, all these I have kept, the young men said, what do I still lack? Now, I gotta be honest, that takes some guts for that dude to just say that, okay? And and let's just kind of unpack this just for just a moment. So um, let's do a bit of a Ten Commandment check just with us today. And I know, uh, I just want to see where we stack up with the Ten Commandments ourselves. And I know probably very few of us here today really need God's grace. Like, we're just perfect. Like, I get it, okay? So for the rest of us, we'll do a little sinner poll to see where we stack up with against perfection, all right? So here's what we're going to do in a second, not right now. And this is with everybody at home too, right? I'm going to have everybody raise their hand and just keep it up in the air, okay? Even at home. I, I don't care if you showered or not. No one smells you. Just you can raise your hand in just a second. Now, here's what you do. You're going to raise your hand in just a second. And if you have done any of the things that I'm going to mention, all you have to do is just take your hand and slip it down. Okay? So what we'll find out, we're going to find out who the holiest among us is today. Um, there, is a, there is a prize for us somewhere. Um, there's no prize. Not at all. Okay? All right? So are we ready? Let's try this. Okay? Everybody hand up in the air. Here we go. I'll skate. Everybody in the air. I can see you at home. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, here we go. Now, put your hand down if you have ever murdered anyone. Okay, if you've ever murdered anyone, all right? People going hands down like, oh, wait, no, I'm good on that one. Yeah, I'm good, okay, all right? Now, okay, here we go. Now, Jesus actually says, though, in his scripture, he says, if you have anger or in your heart or contempt against someone, you actually murdered them. So has anybody ever had anger in your heart or contempt? Sort of, whoa, whoa, whoa. We got one holy person over there. Congratulations, sir. You're the only one. Yeah, love it, love it. Okay, Uh, we'll give you a hall pass. Let's try again. Hands up in the air. Here we go. Let's try this one more time. Here we go. How about this? How many people have have ever misused the Lord's name, and that includes in the parking lot when you got here? Okay, right. Oh, that was quicker than before. Okay, all right, okay. All right, let's try one more. All right, hands up in the air. Here we go. How many people have always observed the Sabbath? You've never missed a day where you've just took push pause. We got a church full of sinners, or what's going on here? My goodness, right? You're telling me we get into any, I didn't even get through four of them. My good, okay, anyway, right. But this is, but the young man just said, he had hand in his ear, he's like, nope, got them all. 
But you're like, you are a liar. And so you've already, right? You know? But, but this actually tips the hand a little bit about who he is and what he does. You see, the fact that Jesus uses the law as a way of connecting with this man about eternity makes us believe that he was a religious leader. And then when the man says that he followed all the laws, tells us that he was a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees prided themselves on adhering to all the laws of God, and they were meticulous about doing so. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all, like 300-some laws, they would do it all. Now, the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Before he became the Apostle Paul the Christian, Paul was a high-ranking Pharisee, and he was trained under a very prominent rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. He was like a big-time guy. And when Paul looked back on his Pharisee season of life, he would describe himself and his, himself this way in Philippians chapter 3. So if you want to flip over there, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4, he says, If someone else thinks that they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, listen, faultless, he says. So a Pharisee like Paul or this young man actually looked at themselves, it just says, as faultless when it came to the law. Which now makes that man's answer not as surprising when you realize that he was a Pharisee and that's what he truly believed. But as a Pharisee, he also would have been part of the ruling class in the society, which would have made him powerful and very, very wealthy. And this is where Jesus pokes beyond the surface of this man's self-righteous rule following. And he looks at something deeper inside him that was actually holding him back. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 would say this. Verse 21 says, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And if you were in the crowd seeing this scene kind of play out, you would be like, oh, snap. No, Jesus, you didn't just do that. I mean, this young man would have been powerful, would have been really well known. He'd be like, oh, no, you didn't, JC. You didn't just do that to that guy, right? This was a moment but, but the gospel of Mark adds a little bit of description to this scene that I think is so important for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, where it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, what we often miss out on this passage is how Jesus felt about this young man. And if you look closely, he wasn't mad. He wasn't even surprised at his confidence. It said two very important things. It says that he looked at him and loved him. Those are really important actions to consider because they're not what you'd expect from somebody that is disgusted or trying to put somebody in their place, is it? Because to look at someone and to love a person comes from a place of wanting to show the person dignity and value and compassion. Guys, Jesus knew this was a powerful man. He knew how religious he was, but he also knew how tightly he was holding on to his wealth. And he knew that this was the heart of the issue that he really struggled with. I love what the author Michael Wilkins actually says when describing it. He says, Jesus takes the young man to the inner place where his values are formed, his heart, and challenges him to see what is his most cherished value, in essence, the ruling God of his life. Jesus could see he was religious. 
but he also could see that he couldn't relinquish this God in his life, this idol in his life of wealth and status. And you know what? Jesus also knows it's hard for us to actually let loose of that cling of our money too. He knows that it can be hard to let loose of that white knuckle grip that we have. And in fact, he knows all the reasons that we give for the reasons why we have to hold on to it. Do I have enough money? Will I run out of money? Will the government give me more money? Where can I get more money? Like all the things that just swell around our head. Jesus knows all of it. How? Because he loves us and he cares for us. And he knows that it will be a weakness of ours. But Jesus says that if you can let go of the grip of your money, I want to put something else in your hands. Things like peace and freedom and perspective and fulfillment and generosity. He says all of that is available if you are willing to give up your need to mind your own business. Jesus asked the question of the young man, were you willing to give up everything and follow me? Here's his response in verse 22. Verse 22 says, the young man heard this. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, normally we read the story between Jesus and this young man, and we instantly go to about Jesus speaking about wealth, with it, which is true. It's a big part of it. But there is an argument that can be made that part of the reason the man walked away was not only because of his money, but also that he believed that it was also part of the identity of who he was. That he couldn't just walk away from the money. He couldn't walk away from what it meant to have money. It was a part of who he was. He was wealthy. He was the rich young ruler. And, and yes, he wanted salvation, he says, but he didn't want to lose his status. Yes, I, I, he wanted eternity, but he didn't want to lose his earnings. Yes, he wanted heaven, but he wanted to bring a little bit of earth with him as he went to heaven. And so the man ultimately told Jesus, mind your business. How often do we tell Jesus to do that in our lives? Yes, I want you to forgive me of my sins, Lord, but I don't want to give any money to the church and help the cause of Christ. No, no, no. Yes, I, I want eternal life, but you know what? I, I believe that my life would be a whole lot better if you weren't in it. So if you could just butt out, that would be great. Yes, I believe that you're the son of God, but please don't, mail me, please don't make me tell any of my friends at school about that. No, 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 please don't. And so here's what we're really telling Jesus when we do that. We're telling him this. We want all the benefits of Jesus without any of the sacrifices. So what do we do? We say, God... Mind your business. Jesus watches this man walk away, back to his home, back to all of his rule following, all of his money counting, and he saw him literally turn his back on the Son of God. As he walks away, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says this, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses this moment not only to teach his disciples, but also to teach you and us a very important lesson. Something that we don't always like to hear, but nonetheless is very, very true. Look carefully, it's this. That when it comes to our money, if we say it's all mine, we can't be all his. 
And, and I know you're probably thinking, man, this is some, this is this, okay, here's the churchy thing. The pastor's gonna tell me this so he can get in my wallet and everything. Like, hey, listen, and maybe some places are like that. That ain't me, okay? I certainly don't want, I don't want any of that. But I don't want you also to take my word for it either. See, Jesus is very clear about something very similar. Matthew chapter six, verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus himself just says, when it comes to our money, if we say it's all mine, we can't be all his. And he's telling us that if given the choice, full, uh, a choice of the fistful of money or the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, God says, take the scars. Just take the scars and trust that I will provide everything else that you need. My friends, listen to me. There is no sense in holding on to something that won't come with us when this life is over. I've never, ever been at the bedside of someone that is preparing to die and have them look at me and say, I just wish I had some more cash. I've never had anyone say, man, I just wish I could buy one more car. Not one person that said, man, I wish I could have a couple more stock options and purchases to make before I go. Not one. It's because our money was never meant to be the core of who we are. It's never meant to be the foundation of our life. We were meant to be defined by Jesus. And everything else that he puts into our life is for us to enjoy in light of that identity. And what Jesus is telling that rich young ruler and what he's telling us today is this, is that if everything in our life of material value was completely wiped away and all that we had was Jesus, we would still be the richest people in the entire world. Because in Jesus, y'all hit the jackpot the jackpot of grace and forgiveness of sins and love and eternal life. Did you ever think that you have a jackpot of Jesus? But I want you to know something. Jesus cares for you just like he does that rich young ruler. <coughs> he sees you and he loves you. He sees you and loves you so much that Jesus would give his life up for you so that you would, he could be free from all the garbage and all the pressure that this world throws at you so that you could be free of sin and live a life both now and for all eternity with him. But it all starts by having the right focus. Look a little farther in Matthew chapter six. He says, so do not worry so do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, focus on the kingdom, focus on me and I'm gonna take care of everything else. I'll take care of the rest. Yes, I want you to work hard. Yes, I want you to have a job. I want you to enjoy the life that I've given you, but I don't want you to lose sight of eternity while you do it. He says, don't lose sight of me. He's saying, listen, when it comes to your money, if it's all yours, he, we can't be all his. We have to remember that it's all his. So what are some practical things we can do with this? What are some things that we could take away from here? Well, I just want to outline a few things. The first thing for your tag your at moment this week would be, number one, just reread Matthew 19, 16 through 24. Don't take my word for it. Open your Bible, read it. It's all there. But the second thing I want everybody to be a part of is I want you to just see what it's like 
to be generous, to, to let loose a little bit of that grip. And we're gonna do something called the $5 challenge. Now, the $5 challenge we've done before, and it's a very simple idea. But today, what you're gonna have the chance to do is to give $5, $10, 50, whatever you wanna give. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna give it to us, but the church will keep zero of it, none of it. And what we've done historically is we've found ways to be able to give that to the community in different ways. We've bought a single mom a car. We've bought groceries for people. You were able to, uh, to pay off $2.2 million in medical debt one year uh, and also pay for someone else's cancer treatment. I mean, there's a, amazing things that we've done. In fact, one time we gave the money back to you so you can bless other people. It's been fantastic. It's awesome. But we're going to do this again. And so today I want you to be a part of the $5 challenge. And you can either do that by uh, scanning the QR code that's on the chair in front of you or on the screen in front of you right now. And when you do that, we're going to actually show you a little video about what it looks like while I talk. All you got to do is when you scan it, you're going to touch that $5 challenge button. When you touch the $5 challenge button, it's going to open up a place where you can put your $5 in, 10, 15, whatever you want to do in there. But there's a twist to it this year, which I think is going to be so cool. Here's the twist. After you do that, you'll have a chance to tell us who you think should receive the $5 challenge money this year. So you're going to put in the little note section underneath there. It's like, tell us a story. Tell us who you think would be a good recipient of, that, of, the, of this $5 challenge. And here's what we're going to do. Our, our pastors, our directors, our team will come together, and we're going to select the one that we feel is the best to be able that we can accomplish the most with the money that was given. Now, here's the deal. You can't be upset if we don't choose yours, all right? There's going to be lots that are going to come in. We're going to do for one, which we wish we could do for everyone. But we want to crowdsource this and let you be a part of selecting how we're going to do it this time. So next week when you come in, we're going to tell you what happened, how much was given, and where that money had gone to. And we've got another little fun surprise next week, which you won't want to miss. But I want everybody to realize what it's like to just let go a little bit. See what it's like and see what the impact that you can make for the kingdom just through a small little $5 challenge. And then the last thing that I want everybody to do is I want everybody to vote this week. I want you to get out. I want you to vote. I want you to be part of the process that is makes America what America is, to be able to vote and have your voice heard. We'll pray at the end of the service for that, but it's a very important time that we do that. So I want to make sure that you're doing that, praying through it, and voting biblically, voting as a Christian, and voting to make decisions that are best. And we trust God ultimately has his hand in all of it. But I want you to vote this week. So for you, read Matthew 19. Be part of the $5 challenge. Go vote. But really deep down, the question is, is what are you going to do with this? What happens when you start to release this and say, it's not all mine. I actually want to be all yours. And when we come to communion every week, it's our perfect opportunity to recenter us back to Jesus and to remember why this is so important. And, and I, I don't care how young you are or how old you are, how rich or how poor you are. This is still the same issue for all of us that we need to wrestle with. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you would do that, that we remember that Jesus gave so much. He gave up his life for us. He, he, he gave up perfection for us. He, he laid down all of that for us so we could have a life with him forever. And what he asked for is that we would just relinquish the control of this life, cling to the life that he's given us, trust him. Now, in a second, we'll take communion after we hear this worship song. If you don't believe in Jesus, it's totally fine. You don't have to take communion today. If you feel like your heart's in the wrong place, you don't need to take communion today. But if you are here and you're a Christian, I would encourage you to take communion with us, to recenter your life back to him, and to ask him those hard questions of what are you holding on to, and what does he want to put in your hand instead? Let me pray for us. We'll get ready to worship a bit and then take communion again. God, we love you. And I just thank you that your word is so true and yet so convicting and so honest. I pray, God, that we would really 
consider where our white knuckle grip or what our white knuckle grip is, what it's on. And maybe for some people it's not money. Maybe they're very generous people and they put you first in their finances, but maybe there's, maybe there's something else. But God, I pray that we wouldn't have an attitude of the rich young ruler, that we would have the attitude that says, Jesus, I want the scars. I'll take the nail scars all day and I'll trust that you'll provide whatever I need. And we wanna see your kingdom first, your will be done first. So God, would you help us to navigate that now, whatever that looks like for us. May we be generous people. May we ultimately trust you that you are good and that you'll always be with us. May the words of the song wash over us, that you are everything. And may we consider that as we prepare our hearts for communion now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.